0: Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode 11 of Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, where this week we make like Dracula and abandon reason for madness to welcome you to our home. Now, for those of you that didn't get the Christopher Lee references in that, where have you been? (laughs) I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you our reading recommendations. And joining me is my regular satellite, Gandalf and Van Helsing, John Richardson. Hello. So I think we should probably segue straight into our first topic related to that because of course I've laced the introduction with all sorts of elements that relate to him the sad passing of Christopher Lee today well announced today we believe he actually died on
1: Sunday. Yes, uh, it is a very sad day I'm afraid. Uh so I was just looking something up about this in all fairness. And in one of his final interviews, Sir Christopher Lee declared his intention to never retire. And he said, when I want to die, I want to die with my boots on. And apparently that's what he did.
0: Yeah, it doesn't surprise Mm. me. This is an actor who obviously has spanned generations and generations and generations of favourite films in that regard. And that's not to say that he perhaps outstayed his welcome in any way. He certainly didn't if you look through his back catalogue, the way in which he reinvented himself in each period of his life related to the characters that he's played, I think is phenomenal.
1: Yeah, what a fantastic career. And, you know, to make it to, uh, I think it's 93 he was. As 93, well, yeah. Still working. In yeah. fact, he was just about to start on another film, actually, a film called The 11th, and that was co-starring Uma Thurman. So. And really into heavy rock music. yes, yes. <laughs> So uh, I didn't even know that, you know, I just, just, no, not at all. I didn't know that. I didn't have a clue about that at all. I just know about um, the Dracula role, the face of Fu Manchu and Saruman. That's all I knew. Really
0: well. There's so many things. I mean, mm. Frankenstein originally, Hammer did Frankenstein before they did Dracula. So he actually he was the monster. He was one of those people as well who you could talk to him about. And there are many interviews with Christopher Lee about some of the people that he knew at particular periods of time in his life. He knew Mervyn Peak. I believe he used to see Mervyn Peak's sister in the library where he'd go and borrow books. Mm-hmm. Mervyn Peak's sister would also be there. He kind of spammed different eras of popular culture, different eras of creativity, and new different groups of people from these different periods of time who passed away before now. Just amazing. Obviously, Peter Cushing, who we've mentioned earlier, the pairing of the two of them in, in Dracula. You've then got to look at Vincent Price, the whole of the, the sort of 60s and 70s horror mm. scene, uh, you know, with Hammer and, and everything else. I mean, he's, he's, he was a phenomenon, absolute phenomenon and the uh, the Tolkien estate had said that he was their choice to play Gandalf yes they had they had said for years they wanted him as Gandalf and of course then when Peter Jackson obviously cast the film you know he cast him as Sauron. I, I I think excellent choice I think he'd, yeah, you know, he was amazing brilliant you know, am, yeah absolutely amazing but just interesting that he'd been associated and always you know been a fan as it were, of, of the material and everything else stands testimony to, you know, how involved, how passionate, you know, he is about genre fiction. Mm,
1: yeah.
0: One thing I wasn't sure about, I did see one website where they were citing his best five movie appearances, and one of them was Count Dooku. What <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> what is this madness? <laughs> I, I
0: I was kind of like, yeah, okay, so Christopher Lee was in Star Wars, that's fine. Christopher Lee was in Attack of the Clones and was the bad guy in Attack of the Clones, okay.
1: I wouldn't call that one of his five best movie appearances. I wouldn't have said so, no. Moving slightly off topic there, but uh, I'm just looking at a couple of tweets that are tweeting their condolences. And moving back onto what you were saying earlier, whereas, you know, he spans all these decades and he's from one age to another type of thing. And there's a tweet from Sir Roger Moore, right, mm. saying it's. Terribly sad when you lose an old friend. And Christopher Lee was one of my oldest. We first met in 1948. Wow. Yeah. He was, apparently, he was special forces too. Really? Yeah, he was involved
0: with the special operations executive. There are a couple of things where people have spoke to him about it. He said, I can't really tell you because we're not allowed to talk about it for the rest of our lives. But let's just say I was in the special forces and and just (laughs) left it at that which was incredible (laughs) such a varied life such an interesting life um i'm sure we will now he's passed you know i'm sure the celebration of the things that he's done and everything else we will find out all sorts of very interesting things so yeah yeah
2: He,
0: he did say there were two things he said about star wars well one of them's about star wars and i'll I'll move to the other one. A whole new career opened up for me when I was in Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. So obviously he felt that that work certainly did stuff for him. The other one was every actor has to make terrible films from time to time, but the trick is never to be terrible in
1: them, which, <laughs> yes, I, you know. Yeah, well, whether, that goes for so many things, doesn't it?
0: Whether you connect that with Star Wars or not, that's up to you. But I think that that does epitomize his career because, you know, certainly Hammer was on a budget, but mm. some of that stuff was tremendous. Some of it wasn't. So I think it does sort of give a very clear idea of his attitude towards the film industry in general. I, I was trying to think of someone else who might be a bit like that. I guess Bruce Campbell's kind of a bit like that.
1: Another tweet, as I was mentioned earlier, was from Elijah Wood, who is, of course as Frodo. Uh, all mm. we know is Frodo. And he says, An extraordinary man and life lead, Sir Christopher Lee. You are an icon and a towering human being with stories for days. We'll miss you. And I think that's a beautiful statements you know yeah it really yeah. touches on what you're saying as well you know the, the life lead thing yeah and an icon
0: very much so really sad passing and obviously our thoughts go out to his family to everyone uh, who knew him well and and a real loss to the film industry you know the very fact that he carried on as you said he carried on working absolutely at everything i mean every interview i saw with him i mean i've seen a fair amount of, of stuff with him Up until somewhat recently, everything I'd seen with him, you know, he still seemed very, very intelligent, very capable, very spry. Yeah, so so such a shame. Okay, so moving on then, we have our second topic of our news, which we're going to continue a little bit about our talk last week about do's and don'ts of publishing in science fiction and fantasy. And I think we sort of covered a fair bit last week, John, with the stuff that we talked about. Since then, just to give you sort of a bit of a a heads up, since then, rather interestingly, I went to the British Fantasy Society social evening on Friday last week, and our friend, friend of the show, Ed Cox, the Relic Guild... special guest, and everybody kind of got to know each other and chat. And what struck me that was really interesting was that pretty much every author that I spoke to there, they've all got agents. All the ones that are looking to be placed with big publishers all got agents. So it kind of chimes a little bit in with what we talked about last week. And we talked about how you need to know what you're getting from your agent. Well, actually, it is more than likely, and I did say about open submission months and other things, but it is more than likely that because agents are dealing regularly with those publishers, that's your route of being able to get to a larger publisher in terms of what you're doing. And we also had comments on the episode... We had, again, another writer, friend of the show, Tim C. Taylor, military science fiction writer who is coming to LaveCon and talks quite a lot about uh, his bits and pieces. Yeah, Yeah, he's talked about the detail of Kindle. So I do urge anybody that's listening and wants to sort of check out stuff, underneath Data Slate episode 10, you'll find all the details of his experience in relation to Kindle. And he's given some comment here about the Kindle Unlimited subscription and the difference between that and Kindle. Prime and how that sort of works and his particular experience with price points related to Kindle. So all very interesting. I do think it's worth lots of writers sharing their experience. If you want to know more, we kind of all need to, you know, take tips off each other in terms of what we've done and what worked and what didn't work. And it's only trial by error that you find anything out, isn't it? It is. Perhaps if there's any authors out there who want to come on, want to record their thoughts about how they're getting into self-publishing or getting into indie publishing or getting into to publishing with the majors we're happy to talk about it I know you were more interested in some of the other elements of what this process entails so a little bit last week we talked about the differences between publishing types what I'm going to do is now I'm going to share a little bit of experience similar to Tim's just to give people a bit of an idea of things maybe that I've done and things I've noticed and you can decide how you gauge with publication So, firstly, writing towards publication is really important. For years, I wrote stories, and I wrote them until I thought they were okay, and then I sent them off somewhere, and then I got a standard rejection, and I put them away, lost a bit of confidence, and then six months later, dusted them off, improved them, sent them off again, and so on. But what I didn't do is think about books in a way of, this is the definitive ending that I am writing towards, one, that actually is a really good tip as a writer, have a definitive ending, know your ending before you start. And two, sit there and say, okay, I'm going to publish this on this date, so it has to be finished by then. And writing towards that kind of helps you form your structure, you know, to doing it. At the same time, when you've published it, it actually helps you put things to bed, A little bit because you then start thinking about the next thing you're going to write and you write in a structure towards it being released rather than just kind of and we've talked about a couple of books on the show doing this throwing all your ideas into a box that kind of doesn't work that well for a good book i think that's important and i think it's surprising how much it changes your mindset when you are writing knowing you're going to put a book out Kate Elliott at Worldcon said, I try and get a book out a year. If I get a book out a year, I feel all right. You know, other authors get more, other authors get less, you know, have different processes. But knowing that you're writing towards publication, I think, is a good plan. It gives you a structure. Where we've talked about price points on self-published work, we're going to cite a, a couple of examples today. Today, my reading recommendation was probably one of these kind of authors. So, what you can do is if you know with ebooks, obviously the overhead of producing the ebook is minimal once you know how to produce an ebook. What you can do is getting a series up on Amazon is a very useful way to engage readers. And understanding, you're manipulating maybe a little bit the reader towards engaging with your series is quite a clever way to maximize your, your sales. So Amazon does this scheme of allowing you five days of setting your book up for free. Now, you might say to that, well, why is that a bonus? I can give my book away for free anytime I want. And I don't want to give my book away for free. But actually, the promotion scheme, what it does or what it did do, it's not quite as good as it used to be because it's quite a crowded environment now. So you have to be careful with this. What that promotion scheme can do is if you've got a series of books and you give the first one away for free, that allows people to get in. Once they're in, they're more inclined towards the rest of the series. So if you write your first book in such a way as it encourages people to read the second one, then that can be a method. Similarly, you could write a small piece because ebooks can be any size. So you might write a novella effectively and that can be a method and so on. The only problem with that is when your reader starts to feel a bit cheated. And it's interesting that some readers, despite the fact they've got a book for free, feel
1: cheated (laughs) when it's a bit short. I like to think of it as if I was writing a book, for instance, not Mm -hmm. that I have, right, but if I was writing a book and someone was reading my book, I would like to be thinking of them as investing their time in my book. So even if they got it for free, they're still investing their time in the reading of my book. Yeah. Yeah. So whilst I'm not getting anything for it in terms of uh, money or anything like that, they are paying a price for it in terms of how long it takes them to read it.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's how the reader sees it. Certainly. Mm. Because I think once you move past the purchase you don't actually remember the price you don't very much do you? no not you at know? all judging the sweet spot judging where the best price point is is actually as a dark art mm. all you can do as a writer is kind of drop in on the level that you think the price should be and then kind of reap it as as things go Similarly, I guess a publisher has an idea, a better idea, because they've got a bigger stable of work, so they can kind of judge it based on how other sales are going. But you, it is a dark art, you've kind of got to look at it and go, okay, where am I by comparison to everybody else? Am I choosing to undercut them for a specific reason? Am I choosing not to? And so on. So. I think it is tricky but certainly that low price point can get you attention and that free offer when you put your book because amazon has a specific scheme that allows you to do it called kdp select which we've talked about before when you put your book on that promotional window there are a lot of affiliate websites or websites that consider themselves affiliated to amazon who will pick up the fact that your book is on for nothing and you then get bundled into a whole selection that is tweeted about that is social media that is promoted that is emailed through a feed etc cetera, etc cetera. and you do notice and you can in the kdp panel you can sit and see all the sales so you notice that you know immediately as you put one in a series on for free there's a massive spike in traffic and then you kind of hope that that's going to cascade into the rest of the series But it is a little bit of a risk because, of course, you are essentially hoping that you can hold them. But then, you know, I guess otherwise they're just not going to read it.
1: I'm just reading Tim Taylor's comment, actually. He makes a mention about changing the behavior of self-publishers and he he quotes the case of Erin Tate where she's released a series of six short novelettes all at once. So the piece you were talking about, about grabbing people's attention, you know, by releasing the one, and then maybe sometime later releasing the second one or the third one. She's gone all out and released all six, and then a bumper edition containing all, all of the novelettes as a separate release, which I think is a really clever way of doing it.
0: Yeah, actually, that's very similar to what I did. Yeah. What I did is with Wissamere, I released Sword of Wissamere and Dragon of Wisemere on mm. the same day. And right. Sword of Whistlemayer went into the promotional scheme. It did for a long time. I've I've left it for a while now. I'm planning on on sort of revisiting, well, I'm revisiting the Whistlemayer series because I'll have a fourth book um, hopefully, hopefully this year. I missed out on sorting it late last year, but hopefully get it sorted this year. But anyway, the point being is I put those first two out at exactly the same time. The first book went into the free promotion scheme. The second book didn't. So the idea was to immediately try and kickstart an audience towards, you know, the series. Now it does work. It worked a lot better probably around 2009 and 2010 when ebook was a fairly you know, less crowded market. So you were seeing 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 sales in particular areas because people populated the genres, but there wasn't a lot of choice in those genres if you see what i mean yeah and so you maybe had like four free books so everyone would download all four uh, in a particular genre and you might like one so that person would benefit and so on now it's quite crowded market so you've actually you've got to be clever to sort of play it and and yeah, i think there are a variety of approaches and it's just about trying trying different things Good. Okay, so I think that probably covers us for part two of our discussion on publishing. We'll come back to that. You know, we're happy to revisit it when we have new news, when we have more things that people want us to talk about. Uh, And we're going to move on from publishing to publisher. So here we have this week's latest news and this was kind of big news earlier in the week specifically before you know the the passing of christopher lee we thought this was going to be our our sort of big news but um (laughs) it's slightly slightly less so this week we've had the nebula award winners which is is great and what we've seen in the nebulas is we've seen a similar trend from what we had in the hugos and the nebulas last year so there is a trend towards female writers which is nice. There is a trend towards progressive fiction, which is nice. And the lists have have come out. We've got, you know, good selection and everything else. Now, what then happened almost similarly or at the same time is we had quite an odd statement coming out from Tor. So from Tor.com, and this is the fantasy and science fiction imprint for Palgrave Macmillan and uh, essentially is run by Tom Doherty. What happened some weeks back when somebody on Facebook asked Irene Gallo, who is a member of TOR's staff team, senior member of TOR's staff team, she was asked, what are the sad puppies and the rabid puppies? And she replied with quite a strong statement related to what they are. Now, this was on her own personal Facebook page. This was not on TOR's website or anything else. And this is what she said. They are two extreme right-wing neo-Nazi groups called the Sad Puppies and Rabid Puppies, respectively. They are calling for the end of social justice in science fiction and fantasy. They are unrepentantly racist, misogynist, and homophobic. A noisy few, but they've been able to gather some Gamergate folks around them and elect a slate of bad to reprehensible works on this year's Hugo ballot. So that was a statement. Vox Day then, on the 6th of June, tweeted a, basically taken a screen grab of this, And tweeted it with two hashtags in, hashtag sadpuppies and hashtag gamergate, which then caused all sorts of shenanigans and resulted on the 8th of June, two days after the tweet, with Tor making an almost unprecedented statement,
1: disavowing themselves from those comments. Well disavowing themselves in terms of trying to reiterate that the comments were made by a, a a person and it was their personal opinion and didn't reflect the opinion of Tor as an entity.
0: Well and that kind of that's the start of the statement. Yes. Yeah. And then it goes on down to suggest that essentially there is a bit of public dressing down as it were. So the last paragraph of the statement, you've, you've nicely paraphrased the first bit, so I'm not going to read all of it to everybody here. If you do want to find it, we will link the statement when the Data Slate episode goes live. So we will, we will link the statement up on the Live Radio page for you to have a look at. And it goes through and it talks about you know all the, the different authors and the diversity of publication at Tor and so on. But the last paragraph... TOR employees, including Miss Gallo, have been reminded that they are required to clarify when they are speaking for TOR and when they are speaking for themselves. We apologise for any confusion Miss Gallo's comments may have caused. Let me reiterate, the views expressed by Miss Gallo are not those of TOR as an organisation, and they are not my own views. Rest assured, TOR remains committed to bringing readers the finest in science fiction on a broad range of topics from a broad range of authors.
1: Thoughts? Well, I think that comment that made, they've made there is absolutely fine, in all fairness. You would want to clarify that a comment that someone in your organisation has made is meant is a personal comment. I don't see any issue with that. It's the same as information security in any organisation, really, and uh, marketing and corporate governance and all that sort of stuff. People are not meant to be speaking. They've got to make it clear that they are speaking on behalf of themselves or when they are speaking and they are wanting to be on part of the entity, they need to state so. So that's absolutely fine. Hmm.
0: You see, I'm not so convinced. I think that the problem here is that related to the idea of personal commentary and public commentary, and also Tor's decision to make that statement public. Now, if I am posting on my own personal Facebook as my own personal status, I am aware that you know, speaking for, for my own opinion and my is kind of the default of that. But at the same time, if I say particular things, then that might call into question my job hmm. and, and Suspicious. everything else. <laughs> <laughs> but the point here is, is that actually, despite the fact that you are saying something personally, you are still publishing something. So exactly. that's what I mean. Yeah, no, I I see. I think I see your point. So yeah, I agree with that. The fact that Tor then made the decision essentially to publicly chastise their employees related to this message, I think is problematic, and mm-hmm. I think it's problematic particularly because it's come as a personal statement from the head of the group, which
1: again blurs the distinction. What you've got to look at is if the person, and it says here, Ms. Gallo is identified on her page as working for Tor. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that then clinches it for me. So basically, if I, for instance, made a statement about something in my field. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I told everyone on this podcast who I worked for. Yeah. Yeah. I would be speaking on behalf of whether I like it or not my views could be construed as being on behalf of the company I work for. Could be seen as somewhat representative. Yes, that's the situation here, I think. There's a lot of passion around it because of the heated debate that is going on. Now then, are her views correct? Who knows? Have they made any comments these people that are overtly homophobic or misogynistic or, or anything? I don't know because I've not actually read them.
0: The the problem here, I guess, to a point, is that a public statement has been made and so it has been responded to and has been responded to in relation to libel, uh, you know, to be considered as as libelous. Now, I think that has provoked Tor's response and mm-hmm. that has provoked Tor's answer. The way in which Tor's answer is written has put them slap-bang center into the middle of this, and if the implicit criticism had been a little bit less personally addressed, then they wouldn't be slap bang in the centre. I think they would probably be able to maintain some professional distance from this, particularly because you know most of the other publishers I read Polygon's statements related to Gamergate and other organisations, you know, have basically have tried to stay back from this because they see it as it's toxic you know the debate on it 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 certainly
1: is it is and it's not going to do anyone any good
0: i think it's a debate that needs to happen i think that writers who are looking to try to create an equality in fiction who are looking to be progressive in relation to you know to fictional themes to champion female writers to champion alternative content and so on and so forth i think there is a good will there and there is a, a an excellent argument but the problem is is once publishers get embroiled in that, then essentially they can only lose because yes. it's all about reputation. The minute that they criticise Irene Gallo is the minute that some people who might be fans of particular progressive
1: fiction will stop reading Tor. I get that, but they haven't criticised her. They've just tried to distance themselves from the comments. Okay. All right. Well, so-
0: I think... Yeah, I think the debate can run and run. It does depend on, you know, and I mean, I'd certainly say
1: that it is critical.
0: But um, would you, I mean, that's,
1: they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, okay?
0: They are, absolutely, so, yes. So
1: so basically, on the one hand, if they did nothing, then mm-hmm. the arguments about libel and all of these things would have continued and rumbled on until someone, somewhere, contacted a lawyer. Mm-hmm. right? And then, with the link to the company... There is every possibility that there would have been a case, okay I'm not saying there is right I'm just saying there's every possibility there would have been, okay, or equally not have been one, but anyway, it gets messy, and then there's a reputational damage, okay uh-huh. now what they've tried to do is they've tried to stimulate that damage by just saying, you know I tried to limit it and just saying right, you know that was a not us uh, we're not involved in in that, and now, looking at those comments it seems to me that people are trying to demand to know exactly what side of the debate to stand on. That's yeah. what, that's what I'm getting from the comments on, on that particular page. And rightfully so, they are not responding to those demands, which they can't. You no, know? I
0: agree. I agree. And I, I think they're wise not to reply further. Mm. I think the problem is essentially they've stepped into the middle. It's like, you know like a wolf in the pack they've stepped into the middle of a of a fight yes and they've bared their throat and both sides have kind of taken a chunk out of them and i think they can unfortunately they can only they can only lose in that regard and i i think the problem and maybe you're right maybe you're you're reading of this and certainly you've you've got a more objective reading of this than, than perhaps than i have because in, in terms of your distance from this from this yeah. particular scene Maybe it is then that I am reading criticism, you know, direct criticism of an individual because she's named and the the elements are there. Whereas perhaps their intention is, you know, is not that, is to, you know... I, I just feel if they had put it in a way that didn't necessarily personally identify quite so obliquely, maybe even just deleted the last paragraph, I think they'd have been in a better situation. But you know we can't know and it's there now and there's nearly 500 comments so if people want to take a look then please do i think it's worth understanding you know i'm i'm not suggesting that people rub a neck on on a train crash effect, effectively i think it is worth understanding if you want to know where science fiction is at the moment in terms of the mm-hmm. current debates related to representation related to gender and what's you know what what is going on because i think it's an exciting time in you know in in writing science fiction at the moment because of this. I'm not saying it's good. I have particular views that we should be seeing things winning and so on and so forth.
1: I I think it's, it's really reflective of the movements in today's society, actually. Yeah. So I think we're getting... There's a lot more backlash against homophobia now than there used to be. There's a lot more backlash against misogynism than there used to be, you know. And this is starting to creep into writing now. Yeah. So you know, whereas before a female lead, you know, written by a male author, you know, female strong character even beating, uh, you know, uh, a a weak male antagonist or or whatever, (laughs) would have been very rare. You know, yeah. or at least there'll be some sort of you know mention about her having to wear a pretty dress to have her special powers or something. Do you know that's what perfect. I mean? There would be there'll be uh, something there that would be weakening to the female position, I think. You know, whereas now you're starting to see a lot more female leads, aren't you? Certainly, I think. And that's what yeah, this debate is about, really. It's about equality. It's about fairness. It's about representation. You know, and and the fact that some people are perhaps not wanting to see that come to its natural fruition. And some people are accusing people of being too biased and some people are not saying people aren't biased enough. And, blah, blah, blah. and that's why we're having the argument, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no, I I think entirely, and I think it's an exciting time, you know, and it's a good time to be challenging the status quo, and I think science fiction does that so well sometimes. There is a real opportunity in the field of of writing science fiction to challenge the status quo anyway, so
2: it is a good time...
0: Yeah, you know, many, many different things have done it. Um, Ancillary Justice, we've obviously talked about before on the show. I think this is a nice time, if anybody is looking to get involved in writing in this genre, or understand more about the, the community of writers in this genre, this is a good time to get involved, because you can kind of see quite clearly the progressive debates and the, you know, and the regressive debates <laughs> where perhaps in the past, you know, you might not necessarily have been able to see what the prevailing themes were that people were interested in writing about and so on and so forth. At the moment, it's absolutely there. You can see what's on people's minds. I think that's a good time for a writer to, to sort of absorb human experience and to, to maybe take it their own way on the page. Okay, so that concludes our news. We'll go to an ad break and we'll be right back with John's
2: book choice. Greetings Commanders, Second Technician Fossil Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Is your life like this? Is your life like this? Take that, evil pirate scum! Piu 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 piu. Piu 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 Attention! Attention!
1: Second pew, technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. Second
2: technician Forrester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken.
1: It could be like
2: this. Drive charging. My God, it's Come to Gone the science fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com.
0: Okay, and we're back. So, John, what have you got for us this week? What have you found?
1: Right. Well, I have been reading one of the Discoveries of Arthur Gray books. Now, these are a series of books, uh, ostensibly written for children. So, it's a children's series of fantasy books, and they are by VK Finish. And when I first started to read this particular book, I was immediately impressed with The writing style it drew me straight in and i didn't really realize how quickly i'd been drawn in until around about halfway through the book which was really good it was it was you know i wasn't page turning i was on my e-reader but you know i was literally flicking through the pages reading and reading and reading so i liked it but anyway a little bit about the book Eleven-year-old Arthur Gray has always wanted to be a hero, and a day has not ended right if he hasn't dug for treasure, plotted to stop thieving magicians, or written clues in his trusty notebook. But the real excitement begins when he's sucked through a transporting doorway and makes an amazing discovery, an entire society that investigates the truth behind all the legends and myths we've always thought were just stories. Now, Arthur is launched into an adventure that takes him all the way to the mountains and jungles of Peru in search of a mysterious dragon bird and the fabulous secrets it guards. The problem is, someone else is after it too. Arthur's chance to be a hero has finally come, but first he has to convince others of the truth before it's too late. I didn't read that one. (laughs) (laughs) That's book one. Yeah, that's the Society's
0: Traitor, uh, Discoveries of Arthur Gray, yes.
1: Now then, the reason I've mentioned that is to give you a flavour of the type of book that it is. A little hint of Harry Potter. You know, in the sort of alternative world and all of that business, the little bits of society within our own society, that sort of element. So the book I was reading was The Eye of Our Moon, which hasn't actually come out yet, as far as I'm aware. And this one is, the ancient book of Thoth has been hiding from humankind for thousands of years. Not even the investigators of the Historia Society have been able to find any hint of it. So when 13-year-old Arthur Gray gets to Egypt and finds a collection of lucky charms, his high hopes of being the one to discover the mysterious book. That is, until the sly renius Burn shows up again. Now, instead of discovering anything, even about how to control his finicky guardian powers, Arthur finds himself surrounded by enemies and threatened no matter where he turns. So, this one is in ancient Egypt, this book, and modern-day Egypt as well. And Like I said, real page-turner. It's the third book in the series. Obviously, the author has progressed the character on a bit. You've certainly aged by about four years. But it's really enjoyable. You've got a nice group of characters. You've got your nerdy people. You've got the prettiest girl in the class. You've got the steady and reliable character that Arthur always looks up to. You know, a little bit like the Sam Gamgee in the Frodo. (laughs) You know, that sort of thing. So... It's it's really nicely done, and it's a good few pages as well, 382 pages.
0: So you would say good, accessible, young adult fiction, effectively?
1: Yes, good, accessible, young adult fiction, and even if you're an adult of 50 years of age like me, you'll be able <laughs> to enjoy it, because it really is a nice read. And it says it's a children's book, but, you know, it's, it's actually quite complex. Uh, some of the things that are being said in it, you know, and some of the words, I would say that kids of under 13 or 14 would probably have difficulty with it really
0: it's one of the best things about good children's writers is that they just talk to people yeah there's no attempt to dumb down there's no attempt to no. you know to sort of they just talk to people as it is and i'm noting with this series that essentially they're playing around i mean the first book is a bit of an introduction. Yeah, certainly what you've said about the third book and the second book the Minotaur riddle what the writer is doing is playing around with quite prevailing mythic themes things that we can plug into things that a child may know that an adult may know a little bit about and then developing them in their own direction yes which is a nice way of using myth and reinventing myth now i know in the past i've talked a little bit about how i'm not so keen on reinvention of myth that gets rid of some of the consequences of it but at yes. the same time using themes that people are curious about to introduce them to a series and a story, can also encourage them to go and find out more about the existing mythology, if you treat the myth correctly.
1: And I think that's what this will do as well, I mean I, I'm, I know my daughter, she absolutely loves ancient Egypt and the pharaohs and things like this, so as soon as I finish this book it's, I'm going to give her a try on it and see what she thinks, and it'll certainly spark it, her interest I think.
0: Yeah, so you know, the book of Thoth immediately evoking all of that, evoking the sort of Egyptian tradition, I'm sure the book is soaked with sort of Egyptian ideas, I oh, would yeah. guess. yeah. There's and, tons of it. You, you really and, are there. <laughs> and so immediately any child is transported to that mm. kind of place and might well then go and pick up some stuff in the school library about Egypt and so on. And you, Do you see what I mean? You're stimulating oh, yeah. young minds in that regard. Yeah. So that sounds, sounds
1: really great. It is actually. It is really good. It seems to be accurate in terms of the way all of the printing is done. If you like, you know, there's no sort of silly errors like "num schools" I keep on referring to, spelt incorrectly, <laughs> and you know everything seems to be, you know, it seems to be been edited well. The pace is pretty good, all the way through. There's no long sections of exposition or anything like that. It's it just. Tells a story. You know, right. And keeps you interested. And that's pretty much all you want, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. So, do you have a bit you want to read?
1: Yeah, sure. It was true. A fire could make a story come alive. Arthur had watched it happen before. He sat still until Gamble dragged a chair next to the little fire. Then he looked expectantly at the old man. I'm going to tell you about one of the most powerful objects ever made. It's also one of the most well-known. It's been called many names, but the most common name is the Holy Grail. Arthur felt his heart jump and his eyes widened. Once, it was more commonly called the Sampo. The people of Finland say it was forged by the mighty smith Merinian in the dark cold lands where the coloured lights in the sky reach out like ghostly fingers. Arthur stared into the fire, transfixed. Was he imagining it, or did the flames just curl up like grasping fingers? Some say the Sampo could change shape and size. It could be small enough to drink from, or it could be large enough to hold a full-grown warrior. Ilmarinian knew how words worked. He knew their meanings and that they could obey him when he used them truly. So he used his words and he flung his hammer and he worked his bellows mixing and moulding liquid gold to create the sampo. The flames of the fire swayed and reached, flickering orange, yellow and blue and Arthur thought he could make out a figure in them, could see a muscled arm swinging a hammer and feel the heat of the sparks that flew from the metal cauldron it created oh okay
0: quite evocative you've got a balanced descriptive style there haven't you you've got yeah certain amounts of imagery careful construction to try and emphasize the elements of the scene that you want people to sort of think about and kind of connecting it because that's one of the things a good writer does is what they do is they make you concentrate on the sections that they want you to concentrate on and they try and make that similar to the things that you would walk into a room and see. So if you go into a library and there's a fire in the grate, your eyes tend to stray towards the fire.
1: Yeah, just passages like that, you can tell that that is nice, easy to read. It's, like I say, evocative. You find yourself imagining this fire. It's really quite vivid in your mind. It's a well-written book, I think.
0: Sounds very good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where can we get a hold of VK Finish?
1: You can get a hold of VK Finish on Amazon, of course. So you want to be looking for the discoveries of Arthur Gray, which is the name of the collection. And the first book in the series is available on, on Amazon at one ninety nine for the Kindle edition, and the other editions are paperback at eight ninety six and hardcover at eighteen ninety nine. Okay. And this one should be coming out shortly but I don't know when
0: right so essentially then you've got the first two books on Amazon that's right right. right. you've got the second book is there as well and this is the the third book in the series it is yeah okay so that's The Eye of Our Moon by VK Finish and we're going to head to an advert break we'll be right back and we'll go into my book choice
2: natural remedies have always been some of the galaxy's finest so when we discovered a wholly natural way of slimming down and reducing your appetite we had to share it with everyone harnessing the amazing powers of our native parasitic life, we've solved an age-old problem. Vegas Slimweed has been used by settlers of the region for decades with undeniable results and significant health benefits. If you think that Vegas Slimweed could be the solution you're looking for, Speak to your doctor today. Traveling with Vegas and weed ingested may constitute smuggling. Please check before your journey and declare yourself customs for an internal search. Failure to digest does not constitute grounds for reimbursement. Side effects may include, but are not limited to, increased blood pressure and heart rate, insomnia, nervousness, blurred vision, restlessness, or headache. Some forms of parasite may cause stomach side effects like constipation, dry mouth, nausea, or vomiting. Small sample patients exhibit full body paralysis, atonic at state, and internal hemorrhaging. Parasite must be purged before pupation, else death will occur. Space can be lonely, but sometimes that's just what you want. Choose your holiday, the gas giants of Alioth, partying the night away in Yorkville on Aquada, or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockfall Corporation makes your holiday special and will let nothing disturb you.
0: And we're back. Okay. And so moving on to my book choice. So I've chosen Sojourn by Gion Cannon. Now, Gion Cannon, quite an interesting writer in that he is one of those individuals who, where we were talking earlier about people who have populated Amazon with a series of books, a wide selection of writing. He is one of those people. And he's quite carefully tailored the writing that he's produced towards particular genres and also thinking about the lengths of his stories related to their price points. Now, John Cannon has written official Stargate SG-1 fiction. He's written some Stargate Atlantis fiction. He's also then done some of his own sort of detective series, paranormal detective series stuff. So we've got the Ridley Para season, the Ridley Para books, and there are then some other series as well. So if you you look him up, you find all sorts of stuff. But Sojourn, very specifically, is it's essentially it's a science fiction horror. So shall I read you the blurb? Oh yes, please. Okay. The first time humanity faced the scourge of Harvestmen, they were forced to take heinous methods to stop their spread across civilised space. Now the Harvestmen are back, and the crew of one vessel has to decide what they're willing to sacrifice in order to exterminate the menace once and for all. Blood and bone and muscle and stone, the harvestman eats you when you're alone. Skin and teeth and hair and eyeball, the harvestman eats you, eats you all. The crew of the peaceful sea vessel, perilous have just completed a mission to retrieve an alien cleric from a world on the verge of cataclysm. The mission goes off without a hitch, and the ship is heading home, when they come across a derelict sister ship adrift in the middle of nowhere. A team is dispatched to see what happened to the missing crew, but instead find themselves face-to-face with a new swarm of their merciless foe. The crew quickly comes to realise they are the only thing standing between the nightmare of the Harvestman destroying the rest of the galaxy, no matter what the cost. So yeah, so there you go. There's some good and bad in that blurb. Yes. The
1: opening sentence having two grammatical errors in it doesn't sell the book particularly well. I think basically you should have a little competition on the comment section of Data Slate and ask people to point out what they are.
0: (laughs) Well, we will see if anybody does, does pick them out. The poetry element. I really like that because mm. as you start to experience what the harvestmen are and you start to find out about them in the story, there's a real attempt to create a myth around these creatures we get the sense everyone's terrified of them and there's possibly a little too much explanation of what they did before but it's good and it certainly as you get into the book you really really feel that they are a significant threat and you start to think how on earth are they going to solve this unfortunately i think the solve is a bit easy okay
1: but hey ho i just want to make a comment on the poetry piece As well, because I do actually really enjoy books that make that effort to create the myth piece, as you've pointed out. But I also hate it when it becomes too much or too much part of the book. A little bit like Lord of the Rings. I mean, Lord of the Rings was replete with songs, (laughs) if if you recall, wasn't it? Sure, sure.
0: I don't think it's necessarily the song element. Don't worry, there's not too many little songs little poems. I think it's the fact that where you're trying to project the fear of a of a thing, where you're trying to suggest that they are embedded in a culture. So if you relate that perhaps to your book choice this evening, yeah. You have a writer who is using things that we already understand and hanging their story along with um, that. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, and kind of tweaking it to fit. Now here, you know, you have a, a writer who is essentially who is taking a theme that is fairly prevalent. You can quite clearly get the influence of aliens. You get that sense of being in space, the claustrophobia. I think it comes across a bit on the cover, doesn't it, really?
1: It um, does, yes. It's almost like the only thing that's missing is Nostromo. <laughs>
0: This is a theme that's prevalent because we know Alien, we know the Gene Stealers. Well, you know, some of us do that play Warhammer, and this kind of has a little bit of both of those ideas. And I, I think obviously the Gene Stealers influenced by Aliens, and this subsequently influenced by by those as as mm-hmm. things go. So yeah. you do you have that direct connection from those elements, but there's also there's a little bit of his own spin to what's there. Specifically, what struck me was the way in which He's made use of sections at the beginning of chapters and at the end of chapters to try and project depth in terms of the situation, the context, the environment. So you have things like newspaper reports, excerpts from books. If you've not read books like that, maybe a little bit like how the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has that little bit of stuff to explain. Yes. Do you see what I mean? Oh
1: yeah, definitely. I, I, I do so, quite like that. As long as it's done yeah. uh, right, it's, it's good, isn't it?
0: So yeah, so he's got a little bit of that. Now I did a little bit of that in Labour Evolution. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would say is that one or two of the themes are telegraphed in those excerpts, so you kind of know, you start to get used to, oh okay, this chapter, we're going to have some of that then, which is a little bit of a shame, bit too telegraphed. And also sometimes they run counter to the tone of the story so you might have quite a light-hearted little excerpt and the story is actually quite dark at that point now as well i get the sense that when he's working on things like stargate then he has to be fairly restrained in terms of some of his content in his own series he's totally not (laughs) you know He's devising a culture and and trying to portray a culture that is sexually comfortable with itself, essentially, that regard, and perhaps sexually more comfortable with itself than modern culture is. And that might be seen as being slightly salacious. There are one or two places where you kind of go, really? Is this needed? Do we actually have to have this? Are you finding parts of it gratuitous? Well, I'm not being a prude about this, okay? So I totally don't mind sexual content in books. My issue is when it doesn't actually form part of the plot. Okay, When it feels like it's kind of... And there is a moment fairly late on, not spoiling it, but there's a moment fairly late on when doom and gloom starts to happen. And prior to the utter doom and gloom moment, people start shedding clothes because <laughs> right. they believe they have nothing else to to do you know uh, i could die tomorrow you know that kind Uh, of moment and it kind of it's a bit cheesy doesn't quite sell so i kind of felt that it was a little bit overdone in that regard but the pages go through he's a very competent writer he's obviously got his style down to an economy it's not going to set the world on fire in terms of the way in which the prose is put together but it's very competently executed it's a really good episodic gritty quick pacey book some of the technology the use of some of the technology he's gone for a fairly modern approach rather than projecting any kind of future stuff to it he has projected with regards to spaceships and things but everyone's still using hard drives or copying data cards or what have you so it's kind of got a modern feel there are one or two things that sort of seem a a little bit stepped on but not a lot in that regard that sort of claustrophobic fear that play with horror is then embedded into the book you certainly feel the tension and the you know the fear from the characters and you start to when you immerse yourself in the environment you start to to really get it so Mm. i've got a section here should i read the section if that's all right yeah brilliant her heart slammed against her chest but she wasn't about to panic based on a hunch Kira, can you patch me through to Aeneas, please? Commander, are you okay? Now, please. She felt bad for spooking Kira. She knew she would by being brusque. She saw that the download of files was done, so she took the drive out and secured it in her pocket. Nassim was tense now, watching her from a position near the door. Commander? Aeneas' voice was high-pitched, innocent, and hearing it calmed Claire just a little. Kira said you yelled at her. Are you okay? I don't know. Scan the ship for life signs. I've done it twice since you got over there. There are only five. Claire drummed her hand on her thigh. Dropped the threshold to ten degrees Celsius. There was a pause. And when Anir spoke again, her voice was thick with dread. Oh no. Commander, get out of there. There you go. You can kind of see it. (laughs) Straight into what's there.
1: That mm. is the, you know, I the love the went, there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I, wanted
0: well, I wanted more. I wanted more. Yeah, it was good. But it, it, you can you can see immediately, can't you? It does what it says on the tin. It's a horror. It's claustrophobic. It's, it's got some weaknesses. There are one or two places where there's a lot of repetition of terms where I kind of think that could do with another proof. And like I said, about one or two choices. But it's 40,000 words or so. So actually, it's a very quick straight through. I think I read it in maybe three days, okay. um, and that was off yeah. and on while I'm while I'm really busy marking at the moment for work. So, so yeah, so you know, really, really good piece.
1: Brilliant, good. So, where can you find this?
0: Okay, so at the moment, you can only find this on Amazon that I'm aware of, and it's only available on Kindle. Uh, it's three pound twenty three via Amazon, and obviously, what we'll do is we will put a link up on the Data Slate page under the episode so that you can click straight through to
1: find it. Brilliant. That sounds good. I think I might uh, have a little gander at that one myself.
0: Okay, so that's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email info at laveradio.com, facebook slash laveradio, at laveradio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding Fozza 101 to your Skype contacts. You can also join the TeamSpeak server where commanders playing Elite Dangerous come to hang out and chat. LaveRadio.teamspeak3.com With LaveCom fast approaching, please do check out the pages on the LaveRadio site. You can find all the info on the activities, and I think the schedule is going up fairly soon. John will be there with Artemis. John,
1: what's what's Artemis then? Right, Artemis is a spaceship bridge simulator. So you've got your uh, science station, helm, weapons, engineering, communications, And, of course, you've got someone sitting in the captain's chair and that uses about five PCs, really, for the client stations. It has a server that uh, coordinates all the activities. All of this is shown on a big view screen, a la Star Trek and all of the other space shows that you become familiar with. Uh, You do battle against uh, AI aliens in this particular setup, and... It's not only the, the screens that have got all of these activities going on. It's, you've got light effects as well. And uh, the real challenge with Artemis is working together. So it's going to be awesome.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And, of course, it'll be a real opportunity for people coming to the convention to go and try it out. Almost like a bit of a thrill ride, really. Something Definitely. to play with your friends. Come out the other end. Swap your war stories in relation to how good you were uh, manning the bridge of a starship. Sounds like a, a fantastic idea. Mm. So in addition to that, I've been looking at my schedule for things that I'm doing at LaveCon and, oh my word, I have so much to do. So I think we'll probably cover a few of the different activities in a future episode and we'll we'll talk through the bits and pieces of stuff to do with LaveCon and the things that you can look forward to if you're choosing to come. And so to finish this evening, I thought we'd perhaps change our usual clothes instead of me writing something. I have another quote for you from Christopher Lee, which I think is very poignant related to his passing. The song My Way is a very remarkable song. It is also difficult to sing because you've got to convince people that what you're singing about is the truth. It's a man who is very proud of having achieved everything that he's achieved his way. And I don't think you could say anything better about Christopher Lee. Brilliant. Good night, commanders, and take care. Good night.